So if this is your first time with us this semester, we are studying the Sermon on the Mount, uh, sort of trying to wrestle with the question of what exactly is the Christian life. You know, um, in our world, there's a lot of he, sh- he said, she said. Um, there's a lot of noise, and people are saying, you know, the Bible says this, the Bible says that, Christianity does this, but Christianity says that. Um, and especially in college, especially at William Mary, there are a lot of different opinions, a lot of different voices out there. So we figured this would be a good uh, question to wrestle with throughout the semester. And last week, if you weren't here, uh, Nina Simone, not the famous singer and writer, uh, but someone just as talented, in my opinion, uh, came and shared her thoughts on the Beatitudes with us. And if you're not familiar uh, with the Beatitudes, that is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus, uh, where we learned last week that Jesus is describing the character of someone who is following him. And Nina left us with uh, sort of four points about this uh, kingdom that Jesus Christ has come to proclaim. She said that the kingdom is not what we expect. The kingdom is not what we think we want. The kingdom is not built by crowds, but by his disciples. And it is a kingdom of God with us. And uh, from there, this kingdom that Jesus has come to proclaim is one that consists of his disciples, the people whose character is described by the Beatitudes, uh, which is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And so tonight, what I'm going to talk about is this next section in the Sermon on the Mount that's titled in most Bibles as Salt and Light. And so we're going to get into what exactly uh, Jesus meant when he said we were salt and light. Um, So I'm going to actually start by reading uh, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, um, starting with the Beatitudes. So if you have Bibles, if you have a Bible app, uh, go ahead and bust that out. Um, I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 5, reading verses 1 through 16. Um, But tonight we will be uh, mostly focusing on Uh, verses 13 through 16. So this is Jesus talking to the crowds and his disciples. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who was in heaven, or who is in heaven, excuse me. All right. So, as I was uh, preparing for this talk, um, and I grew up going to church, I grew up in a Christian 
um, private school until I came to college. Uh, so I've like I have I had experienced the Sermon on the Mount, um, you know, being taught in small groups and Bible studies and all that jazz. Um, but something I had never noticed until like this week um, was that. This is kind of my beef with some of the headings in the Bible sometimes. So like these headings, for me personally, I don't know how like other people that read the Bible experience them, but like the headings sometimes sort of just chop up what is uh, like what the scripture is saying. So like there's like the first heading in this section is the Beatitudes. Then it says salt and light. So in my mind, all these years, they have sort of been separate talks, like separate um, truths. Um, but as I was studying, I realized, wait, when he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, he is talking about this person he described in the Beatitudes. So he's saying, the poor in spirit, those who are mourning, the meek, and meek is another word for humble. A good, a good uh, image to keep in mind when you hear the word meek is like sort of that old proverb or whatever, like about a stallion has to be broken before it can really be great. Like that's kind of a good image to think of when you hear the word meek. Um, sort of like power, but with humility. Uh, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, people who are persecuted, those are the types of, these, this person that Beatitudes is describing is the type of person that is the salt of the earth in the light of the world. So the next question is, what, is it, what does it really mean to be salt of the earth in the light of the world? And what about these two things makes them great metaphors uh, for people in God's kingdom? Um, and so the, the choice of the metaphor tells us something about both the world and the disciple. And I feel like a lot of times that I've heard this passage spoken on, people have focused on how salt sort of like makes things taste better and it adds flavor and brings flavor out and stuff like that, which is true. But another important thing that salt does, which you've probably heard as well, is it's a preservative. Like, People back in the day used salt to keep their food fresh and their food from decaying. And, you know, that process involves, you know, like really like lathering the food in salt. Like, like just imagine, you know, somebody smacking like a slab of ribs or some steak, like with like a handful of salt. It's like a very intimate, like involved physical thing. And so what this metaphor of being salt of the earth is saying is that the world, when it's left to its own, just the same way if you were to buy a package of bacon, take it out, leave it on the counter for a few days, your house would start smelling kind of funky. Like in the same way, when the world is left to its own desires and its own devices, it is prone to decay. Um, I think if my memory serves me correctly, you know, there's, a, there's like a law, like a thermodynamics, like without energy from an outside source, like the universe just sort of ends up in more randomness. Is that, is that tracking with anybody? Ent entropy, yes, thank you. Isn't that like delta S or something? All right, cool. William Mary degree, it, goes, it takes you places. Um, and sometimes it doesn't, you end up in the same city that you went to college, but it's all right. It's all right, we're employed, we're having fun. It's all good. Um, so yes, when you leave the world on its own, it results ends up decaying, it ends up in disorder, it ends up in chaos. So yes, salt may add flavor um, to whatever food you may be eating, but I think there's a, another uh, piece here that's important to recognize, and that is the person 
described in the Beatitudes is also meant to step into these sort of nasty situations that a lot of people shy away from, you know, like working with kids um, with special needs, you know, doing prison ministry, visiting prisoners, um, you know, working with the poor and things like that. Um, Because the idea that, you know, we can, like, we can be salt and sort of, like, make the world more appealing to God is, you know, it's kind of tricky. There's a verse in Isaiah, it's Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, it says, you know, our good deeds are like dirty rags. You know, there's never really going to be enough that we can do in order to, like, gain good standing with God other than just embracing Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so as the salt of the earth, we are to prevent the world from socially decaying. And salt, back in that day, was not just pure table salt like sodium chloride, like, you know, Lowry's that you're used to putting on scrambled eggs and whatnot. Um, But, you know, it had other elements in it. It was more complex than, like I said, just the normal table salt that you're used to. And in the same way, each of you, each person that is a part of the body of Christ brings you know, some complexity and some of its own, some of your own distinct beauty to every situation that God has enabled you to step into and serve and minister um, in those difficult situations. So the influence of Christians in and on society depends on their being distinct and not identical um, to the surrounding culture. Um, This could be, uh, was it like the minority opinion or whatever, but one of the, my favorite books that I was forced to read growing up in high school was Lord of the Flies, um, partially just because I feel like we all think of, like, what would you do if you were stranded on an island? Um, so it was cool to, like, read a story about that. But I think a lot of people dislike Lord of the Flies because it's, it sheds light on the reality of, like, our human condition. Like, when we're left to ourselves and, you know, we have to sort of make our own rules and do our own thing, Sure, you know, you might have some people that are trying to do the right thing. The only character I can think of right now is Piggy. Piggy dies. Um, And I don't think many people actually liked Piggy, so I'm not really focusing on Piggy, but there's, you know, a side where, like, they're trying to do the right thing, like, trying to be orderly and civilized, like, hey, like, I'm the one speaking, you know, listen up. But then there's also going to be the other side that's, like, chaotic and unruly and killing each other and just doing all sorts of weird things that I did not recognize were happening without spark notes. Um, Good night. Uh, But I think that's a good image of what Jesus was trying to say here. Like we as Christians, you know, as people trying to move through that sort of journey that Nina described in the Beatitudes, we have to be willing to step into these less than desirable situations. We have to be willing to stop and check on that friend who's been just kind of locked up in their dorm room crying and nobody's really heard from them in a while. We have to be willing to maybe stopping on our way to class, clearly seeing that somebody's not having a good day and saying, hey man, like, like what's going on? You know, like you're in college, like you're doing all right. Like, you know, let's talk a little bit. Like what, what's, what got you down right now? Um, and so I found this quote on, online from a pastor from Texas named Tony Evans, um, who's really good. I think he articulates this very well. Um, He says, when we look closely at a deteriorating culture, we will probably see the people of God withdrawing from it. For example, when Christians abandon inner city and urban neighborhoods, taking their skills, resources, and moral influence with them, 
those neighborhoods deteriorate. When Christians leave the public school system, moral values are systematically erased until they become almost illegal to teach. When Christians vacate the media, a spiritual approach to defining everything we hold dear goes with them. When Christians get out of politics, righteous political decisions leave with them. God's people have been called to penetrate society. Of course, evangelism is always first, because without forgiveness of sins, anything else we give a person is temporary. We have been called first and foremost to win people to Christ. But after a person receives Christ for eternity, he must represent Christ in history. Excuse me. Christians must offer others hope. No earthly institution offers real hope for the world. The absence of righteousness in our culture has everything to do with the absence of God's people penetrating the culture. When there is no yeast, the bread stays flat. That was my favorite line. When there is no yeast, the bread stays flat. I guarantee you if Lil Wayne said that in a song, it would have blown up on Twitter. You laugh. I'm dead serious. <laughs> um, so all that to say, you know, let's put it in William Mary terms or Thomas Nelson terms. When Christians, you know, stop engaging in campus, on campus in, you know, studying and swim and, you know, trying not to, in, trying not to partake in studying the way other people do when we just study with ourselves, when we only hang out with each other on Wednesday nights or Friday nights or whenever all the other 5,200 Christian organizations on campus meet. If all we do is meet with each other and not engage in, you know, AMP events, um, homecoming parades, all of God's values leave with us. Um, and that was something that I personally struggled with throughout college. Um, you know, people knew me as like, oh, Isaiah is like the tribe fellowship guy. Isaiah does tribe fellowship, yada, yada, yada. And I ended up sort of resting on my laurels, resting on that reputation. And I never really engaged as much with a lot of activities that were going on on campus um, as I probably should have and needed to. Uh, and I say that because you know, I was that person that a lot of people said, oh, yeah, like Isaiah, you know, like he's a good guy. He's doing the right thing and, and all that stuff. And, you know, I want you guys to do, like, better than I did. I want you guys to be known for, like, having, having those hard conversations, reaching into those difficult situations. I don't want you guys to just be known as, oh, they do Young Life. Oh, they do TF. Oh, they do InterVarsity. Oh, they do RUF. Um, because I think we were meant for more than that. And I don't want you guys to take the four years for granted in the same ways that I did. Um, and so that's the first metaphor, salt. So what does light have to tell us about the disciples in the world? Um, well, for one, that's more blatantly obvious in the text. Uh, Jesus is saying that the world is dark and is blind to its own reality on its own. If you, ever, if you think about being dark in an unfamiliar place. You don't really see what's really in front of you well. You don't see like what the surrounding is. You don't really have a accurate layout of the land. But once you shine a light, you know, like it's one of the most important things they tell you to bring on a camping trip, a flashlight. Like once you shine the light, you can get a better picture of what's going on around you. You can sort of understand what is really going on and what is really there. Uh, in the same way, Christians are called to speak truth into the world um, into a world that gets caught up in all the he, he said, she said, and what's true for you is not necessarily true for me, but what's true for you can't be true for you. 
Um, I'm going to read a quote from this uh, commentary written by a guy named John Stott, who I don't actually know, but all the pastors recommended it to me. So we're going to take it um, as legit. But seriously, from what I've read, it's pretty good. Um, He says, the works that we are talking about now deal with the first three great commandments, which pertain to God's honor, name, and word. It is healthy to be reminded that believing, confessing, and teaching the truth are also good works, which give evidence to our, give evidence of our regeneration by the Holy Spirit. We must not limit them to these, however. Good works are works of love as well as of faith. They express not only our loyalty to God, but our care for our fellows as well. Indeed, the primary meaning of works must be practical, visible deeds of compassion. It is when people see these, Jesus said, that they will glorify God, for they embody the good news of his love, which we proclaim. And so works are important, but it comes from the truth of knowing God. And disciples shine light by sharing truth and being willing to let our Christianity be visible. Um, uh, Pastor Wes, who's speaking next week, and he's actually here tonight, uh, introduced me to a man named Ben Hakim, who grew up in Williamsburg. Um, and he's currently a missionary in China, I believe. Is that right, Wes? Missionary in China? Missionary in China. Um, and we've met a couple of times now, and he's, we've just been getting to know each other, and he's just asking how he can support like what we're doing on campus here. And last week, um, we got, or we met for um, what I thought was only going to be an hour, but we got, we're just getting together just to catch up, hear how things were going. And Ben, so Ben's one of those one of those guys that's like very sort of the world would describe him as very spiritual. What Christians would say is he's very in tune with the Holy Spirit. Like he is just always listening for what God is doing. And so Ben looks at me on Friday, this past Friday, um, while we're out of Romans, and he's like, "Hey, like I thought it'd be cool to you know just uh, go on campus and just talk to some students and encourage them and talk to them about God." And outwardly, I'm like, "Yeah." Um, let's do that. Inside, I'm like, this is it. I'm going to become that campus minister that's always trying to talk to guys about God, and I'm going to say something stupid. I've never done this before. Like, I can't do this, but let's do it, because I don't want to be a punk. Um, that's literally what I said. I was like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be scared, so let's, let's do it. Um, and it was incredible. Like, Ben, he, like, went up to some of these students, and he just said, hey, you know, Isaiah and I are just walking around and we're just trying to, you know, talk to people about God and encourage them and just want you to know, like, God loves you. And, and you know, um, I'm praying and right now he's telling me, like, this, that, and the other. Like, he would, like, talk about things, like, personal things about, like, these people's lives and he would be right. Like, I have never, like, I've never actually experienced before in my life. And I'm, you know, that obviously takes a certain spiritual maturity, but I share that story to say, those are the types of things that God wants us to be doing. God wants us to step out, like, in faith. He wants us to step out of our comfort zone and encourage people. You know, you're not trying to just say, hey, like, you need to believe in God. You just want people to know, like, hey, like, you're more valuable than the grades that you put out. Like, you're more valuable than whatever internship you get. You're more more valuable than 
whatever school is on your diploma, you know, like TNTC, ODU, William Mary, like Richard Bland, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, there is a God that cares so much more about your heart and your just physical, spiritual, and mental well-being more than anyone on earth ever will. Um, and like I said before, I was not good at speaking truth into people's lives um, when I was a student at college, and it's still something that I'm striving to get better at. There was, um, there was one time, I think it was sophomore year, uh, I was meeting with a friend for lunch, and he had come to Tribe Fellowship, like, earlier in the week or the week before, and, you know, like, he had really been, like, hit by, um, there was this guy named Timotheus Pope that came to speak, um, and he really been hit by what he said, and I was like, okay, like, I'm going to try to capitalize on this, like, try to talk about God, and we sit down at lunch, and I think he could kind of tell, like, what was about to happen, and he was like, so, like, what did you, like, what did you want to get lunch for? Because we had, I never really reached out to him before. He was like, so, like, you know, what, what, what do you want to talk about? And in my mind, I'm like, all right, like, I want, you know, I just wanted to ask you, like, what's your experience with God? Like, this is it. Here it goes. That was what's going on in my mind. Outwardly, I was just like, oh, I just wanted to catch up. Just, just want to see how you're doing, you know? <laughs> like, how's football? How's life? You still pledging? You pledging that frat? Like, I, I bailed. I bailed hard because I was scared. <laughs> like, I was terrified. And, you know, it's not, it's not meant to be easy. Uh, like I said, you know, think about being salt, being put on, like, a decaying piece of meat. Like, that does not actually sound great. But that's kind of, like, that, that image is so poignant, but that's really, like, what it is. Like, we, are ha we have to step into these difficult situations and trust that God will move through us. And another one of those difficult situations that I sucked at in college was confronting friends, like close personal friends that would probably respect what I had to say, but it was just kind of like, uh, you know, like the house is doing well. Like, I don't really want to, you know, mess anything up. Um, and again, like I was one of those guys and I think I still am one of those guys that people would say, oh yeah, like Isaiah's probably like, you know, a good friend to all of his friends. You know, he's probably one of those stand-up guys that like anybody would want him as a friend. But like by the end of my time in college and I started realizing where I had sort of let some people down, if all I had done is just ask that extra question or just said, hey, like maybe you should think a little bit harder about that. I was like, man, like I suck as a friend. Like they're just like, I'm serious. Like I can look back on multiple like very vivid moments where it's like all I had to do was just say something. All I had to do was just say something. And, you know, maybe it wouldn't have turned out that much differently, but I got to believe it would have at least put these people, like, in a better direction, maybe would have saved some tears and some pain. Um, so, again, I'm telling you this because I want you all to be better than I was in college. And um, this is something that I'm trying to sort of instill in the culture at Tribe Fellowship here, sort of trying to change the way we do things. Um, a lot of the, uh, the leadership team is going to be going through this book called Breaking the Huddle um, that my friend Connor, who helps run IV, recommended to me. And basically the premise of Breaking the Huddle is, if you think about what a huddle actually is, you know, you're, the football team or whatever team is, you know, inward facing, they're all facing each other, talking about a game plan, talking about, you know, the strategy and everything. Um, but sometimes communities like Tribe Fellowship or whatever, you know, Christian community you could think of, sometimes we get huddled. Sometimes 
we become too inward facing and too inward focused and we forget about the world around us and we lose our saltiness or we lose that light or we don't shine that light. You know, like uh, Jesus said, like the light is not meant to be put under a basket. You know, nobody lights a lamp or lights a flashlight to not see whatever's around them. Um, and so breaking, a huddle, breaking the huddle is about becoming better disciples by being more witness and outreach-minded. And, you know, a lot of people think sort of witness and outreach is, those are things that are sort of like gifts that only certain people can do. But I think we're all honest, ourse- well, we're all honest with ourselves. And when we look at Scripture and just sort of try to embrace what is actually there, we'll see that, wait, every child of God, every believer has that responsibility of being light and being salt to the world around them. That's what Jesus is saying here. Like, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be that person described in the Beatitudes, you have the responsibility to be salt and light to the world around you. It's not really a choice. Like, you don't get to pick and choose, you know, who you're going to love, who you're going to serve. If there is a need and you have been gifted or called to fulfill that need, we have a responsibility to do so. And that's honestly why I'm here, why I'm even doing this job. I was going to go to grad school to do physical therapy. And when I say I was going to go to grad school, I've been accepted. Like, I had a scholarship. Like, I was set. And I don't say that to brag. I'm just telling you, like, the email was ready. Like, all I had to do was say, all right, like, admissions fee. Here, here's the check. But here I am because I realized that God had put a call on my life and there was a need. And I had credentials, like, to fill that need or at least attempt to. You know, for all I know, like, I could crash and burn in this position. But just because I am sowing seeds doesn't mean I have to be the one to also reap that same fruit. You know, somebody could come up next year, two years, three years, ten years after me, and they could see this room filled, like, to the point where people are, like, sitting on the stairs, and I could be long gone. But I would live my life much better knowing that I at least responded to the call that I felt. And that's what I'm trying to instill in you guys tonight and hopefully for the rest of my time in this position. Here's another quote from this commentary that I read. The author wrote, flight into the, actually he was quoting somebody else when he said this, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Let that sink in. Flight into the invisible is a denial of of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. So, if the Beatitudes talk about Christian character, these metaphors of salt and light are describing the function of, a Christ, of Christian influence. And the metaphors that, these metaphors that Jesus uses to teach uh, leave us with three major points. Based on the character of the Christian, we should be fundamentally distinct from non-Christians, like salt to a wound or light in a dark room. You know, like if you have ever gotten salt or Germex whatever, like just name something that's cleaning a wound. It hurts for a reason. So it's, it's highlighting the fact that something's wrong. The second major point is that we have a responsibility, which is what I was just trying to convey. Each metaphor begins with the, the, the pronoun of the emphatic you. In the Greek language, apparently, it's just like very forceful. Like you are the salt of the, of the earth. You are the light of the world. Um, and so you are the light, and, you, and so you must let your light shine and not conceal it in any way. 
You are salt, so you must be a difference maker and step into the uncomfortable situations and not conceal your faith in any way, whether by sin or by compromise, by laziness or by fear. And if you're like me, the big one is fear. And our responsibility is twofold. Like salt to a wound, we have, we have to call out what is wrong, um, but out of love. And uh, there's one more quote that I have. This guy wrote good stuff. Um, here we go. Uh, and when society does go bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world. But should we not rather reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. That's fair. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is, where is the salt? So next time you see a less than desirable situation, next time you see a situation where you're like, this isn't right, this doesn't feel right, why is this happening, it should be different. Instead of asking, why is this happening, ask, what can I do to change this? Um, so it is through a life like this that we will glorify God. And that's, I think, the last major point I want to make. This, uh, I'm going to reread the passage and just pay attention to this last verse. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp put it, and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, and here's, here's the last bit, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So these things that we're doing, this responsibility that we have, it's not about us. It's about God. Like, by being salt and by being light in this world, people, that is what will turn people towards God. Like, that is what people will see and feel and realize, wow, like, this God is incredible like glory be to God. Like that is what the purpose of being salt and being light is. Um, I was reading a book over the summer. And by reading a book, I mean reading the first chapter. Um, it was called Instrum Instruments in the Hands of the Redeemer by a guy named Paul David Tripp. He uh, writes some good things. Um, but he made a point that was like groundbreaking for me. I literally, like, again, remember, I've grown up in a Christian high school. I've been to church literally every year of my life. This is something I never learned, never heard taught, never really thought about. Like, if when you read the end of the Bible and you read the book of Revelation, nobody's celebrating like, oh, wow, we won the championship. Oh, wow, I graduated college. Wow, I married the woman of my dreams or the man of my dreams. Wow, I got that job and ended up with a million dollars in my trust fund or whatever. Nobody's celebrating any of that. What they're saying is glory be to God, Jesus won. Jesus has the victory. And that like has actually changed the way I approach a lot of things that I do. Like that's actually incredible to me. And as I say that to you, I'm like I'm actually getting caught up and like man, I don't even think I fully feel the weight of that. But just as you go about like the rest of your week and you know, just the rest of the year, like try to like keep that reality in mind. The end goal like nobody is celebrating anything that we've done. We're celebrating what Jesus has done. Um, and so if you're new um, tonight, 
Um, we do, we break up into small groups that we call tribes at the end of every talk. And so I just have three questions for us to think about. And I'm kind of calling you guys out um, tonight. Uh, so you can do with that what you will. Um, but uh, if you guys have your phones, I don't have a slide for you. I'm sorry. If you guys have your phones, you can like jot this down in your notes section or something. Um, so the first question is, who is someone that has been salt and light in your life? And how, how did they go about doing that? Who is someone that has been salt and light in your life? And how did they go about doing that? Second question. Who is someone in your life that you can be salt and light to? Who is someone in your life that you can be salt and light to? And <clears throat> this is the last one. What is one practical thing you can do to achieve that? So what is one practical thing you can do to be salt and light for someone that's in your life? The second piece of that question is before you leave tonight, preferably find someone that's preferably here tonight um, to like hold you accountable. Like just ask someone, hey, this is what I'm going to do before Tribe Fellowship next week. You know, before we go back, we're going to talk about it. We're going to text about it, call about it, like whatever. We're going to talk about what we did and what we experienced um, by doing that, what we learned about ourselves. Um, so what is one practical thing you can do to be salt and light in someone's life? And who is someone here tonight that you're going to ask to hold you down and hold you accountable to that?